What's up, everyone? I'm Joe Pompliano, and this is The Joe Pomp Show. I hope everyone's having a great week so far. We have three topics to talk about today. Number one, the NFL is increasing its salary cap to $255.4 million per club next season. That's an unprecedented $30 million increase from 2023. And everyone wants to talk about how players are going to be making more money than ever before. And that's true. But instead, I want to talk about how this makes the NFL's business model better than every other league and why it benefits owners more than everyone else. Number two, we're going to be talking about court storming in college basketball. Now, this is by no means a new discussion, but it's been reignited over the last few days because of an incident this past weekend between Wake Forest and Duke. I've seen a lot of ideas floated on the internet over the last few days of how we could solve this problem, but I want to explain to you guys how often it's actually happening and some more logical solutions that I've seen proposed. And number three, we're going to be talking about Anthony Kim. Now, golf fans know Anthony Kim as one of the up-and-comers on the PGA Tour throughout the early 2000s. He got hurt, and he has been out of the game in the professional scene for at least the last decade. But he's returned to live golf to make his debut, and he has to give up a $10 million-plus insurance policy as a result. I'll walk you guys through the financial details of that deal and why Live Golf is ultimately deciding to do it. I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. Let's get right into it. All right, let's start today's episode by talking about the NFL salary cap. The NFL League Office announced last week that they were going to be increasing the salary cap for 2024 to $255.4 million per club. Now, the reason why this is such a big deal is because most cap experts, teams, fans, and players expect the cap to increase somewhere between $10 million to maybe $15 million annually. But we're seeing an unprecedented $30 million increase for 2024. This is great news. It's primarily driven by the NFL recently announcing $110 billion of media rights packages, and it means that players and agents are going to be making more money than ever before. But the reason I want to talk about this today is because the salary cap is part of the reason why the NFL's business model is better than any other league in professional sports today. Many people that follow the NFL for multiple decades now know that the salary cap is actually relatively new. It was implemented in 1994, and before that, the NFL operated on what's known as a reserve system. This was adopted from Major League Baseball, and essentially it meant that a player could stay with a team his entire career, because when his contract expired, he could only negotiate with the team he was currently on. The only way to switch teams, because there was no free agency, was to either A, retire, B, get traded, or C, have your contract traded to another team. This system, based on supply and demand, artificially suppressed NFL salaries for decades, and it was a major problem. There was a bunch of NFL players that sued the NFL, and it led to several lockouts over the years. So in 1994, the NFLPA and the NFL agreed in the collective bargaining agreement to establish free agency. But as the saying goes, there is no free lunch. So in return for establishing free agency with the NFL Players Association, NFL owners got a salary cap. Now, you guys know what a salary cap is. I don't need to explain it to you, but there are different variations, and it primarily does two things. One, it helps control costs, and two, it creates parity amongst different leagues and teams. And there are a variation of different salary caps used in professional sports today. MLB has a different one than the NBA, and the NBA has a different one than the NFL, and the NFL has a different one than MLS. But they all have a few things in common. There's soft caps, there's hard caps, there's luxury taxes, and there's salary floors. But most importantly, no one benefits from this more than the owners themselves. Let's talk about the NFL, for instance. The NFL primarily makes money in two ways. There's national revenue and there's local revenue. National revenue is anything that's done at the league office. So it's the selling of media rights, it's league-wide sponsorships, it's merchandise that's sold at the league level, et cetera. And then local revenue is things that are done at the local revenue. It's ticket sales, it's concessions, it's parking, it's sponsorships for the stadium, including naming rights and things like that. National revenue is typically bigger than local revenue, depending on the size of the club that you own or you participate in or that you're a fan of. 
But let's use real numbers here because I want to explain to you guys how important the salary cap is to the overall NFL's business model. So this year, the salary cap is set at $255.4 million. That means that's how much NFL teams, outside of other player compensation like health benefits and stuff like that, are going to be spending on their active roster. But on a national revenue basis, each team will get a check at the end of the year for over $400 million. That's, again, media rights, sponsorships, and things like that. So the important part about this is that a salary cap helps set a profitability floor. You know how much money that you're going to be making on an annual basis because you can map out your expenses, right? You're able to forecast on a model perspective better than other leagues are because if you go to the English Premier League, you don't know how much money you're going to be spending next year or five years from now on player salaries. In the NFL, you know of that because of the salary cap. And it also means that everything from a local revenue perspective is a cherry on top. Now, don't get me wrong. There are expenses. Some teams are renting multiple planes to travel to their eight or nine away games each year. Coaching salaries have reached 15 to $20 million on the higher end. And there are numerous other expenses that go on throughout the year. Teams are spending hundreds of millions of dollars on expenses every single year. But the important part about this is that it makes teams profitable. Because when you add the national revenue, with the local revenue, and you set the floor on player expenses as part of the CBA, teams are raking in hundreds of millions of dollars in operating profit. I'll give you guys an example. Sportico says in 2022, the Dallas Cowboys led the NFL with $460 million in operating profit in EBITDA that year. And the reason they're able to do that is because not only are they receiving the same national revenue check that every NFL team is getting, but they're also making more money than everyone else on the local revenue side. I mean, Jerry Jones is famous for this. He sells better sponsorships. He has a ton of money tied up in the real estate down there. And he makes a tremendous amount of money on the local revenue side. But there's a number of other teams that are making good money too. The New England Patriots were number two with $265 million in EBITDA last year. The New York Giants were number three at $215 million in EBITDA in 2022. And the average NFL team is bringing in $137 million in EBITDA every single year. And that number is only going to continue to get higher as national revenue continues to increase. And again, this is why I always talk about the NFL having the best business model in all of sports. I've talked to executives, team and league executives at virtually every other professional sports league in the United States, and all of them are envious and jealous of the NFL's model. And the reason for that is quite simple. Let's just look at the details here. On a broadcasting basis, the NFL sells all of its rights at a national level. So they don't have to deal with any uh, regional sports networks, the RSNs, that a lot are going bankrupt and have been a financial mess over the last few years. They also sign agreements with a mix of broadcast, cable, and streaming companies. That gives them the perfect mix of reach, innovation, and monetization. That's amazing, and they've been able to do that better than every other league. We've seen that with their recent streaming exclusive-only games. They sold a game last year to uh, Peacock for $110 million, and this upcoming season, they're selling one to Amazon for $150 million. They slice and dice their media rights better than everyone else. And then when you add in the salary cap, the fact that it rises in parallel with revenue growth is another amazing tactic for NFL owners to be able to forecast their growth over the coming years. We obviously know that they're growing internationally. They're going to be playing five games in a number of different countries this coming season, building that global audience year over year over year. And while it's not as lucrative as the U.S. audience from a pure GDP perspective, it still helps the overall growth of the product to become an international audience. And I don't even need to get started on online sports betting. Online sports betting has obviously raised the bar when it comes to sponsorship revenue, But I also think that people don't talk about it enough in the context of viewership numbers. We've seen viewership numbers skyrocket across virtually all major professional sports leagues outside of the NBA over the last few years. Now, part of this is because Nielsen changed the way that they record the numbers and broadcast the numbers. But the other part of this is I think more people are watching the games because more people are betting on the games and they want to watch their teams and the players they have prop bets on perform in those games. 
I have a quote here from Roger Goodell that I think gives good insight into how he's thinking about growth of the NFL over the next several years. The NFL commissioner says, I am convinced that this game is going to be a global sport. We could have sold out over two games in Germany last year. There were 4.5 million tickets in demand. They sold that in minutes. And it's literally the same with the UK. I think you're going to see a very global NFL, not necessarily with franchises, but maybe like we have one playing games on a global basis. And I see that happening in the next five to 10 years. So yes, a $30 million increase in the salary cap is great for players and it's great for agents. It means that teams like the Kansas City Chiefs, who just won the Super Bowl, are going to have more money to re-sign free agents and compete again next year. And the running joke is that it helps every team because now they're going to be able to go out and sign free agents for more money than they had before. But at the end of the day, the important thing to remember is that NFL owners are more than happy to see the salary cap increase because it means that national revenue checks and local revenue checks are coming in more and more every single year. It's important to remember that the NFL is the biggest sports league in America by far and away. Nothing else comes close. And these numbers are only going to get bigger over time. This episode is brought to you by U.S. Bank. Winter can be a drag. Thankfully, we have sports to get us through the early part of the year. If you ask me, nothing goes together quite like food and sports, especially this time of year. I mean, we got football on, college and pro hoops, hockey. So let's just say I may be plopped down on my couch until the temperature hits the 80s again. And the U.S. Bank Altitude Go Visa Signature Card provides the perfect way to earn rewards. Whether you're watching your team with other super fans at a local eatery or in the comfort of your own living room, I know me personally, there's nothing better than ordering wings, sitting on my own couch, and watching sports. You can earn four times points when you dine out or have food delivered. I mean, those wings do sound pretty damn good. Plus, earn two times points at grocery stores. Maybe you want to cook the wings yourself. And if you're willing to brave the elements, even getting to the game can be rewarding, as you'll earn two times points at gas stations and EV charging stations. So go to usbank.com slash altitude go to learn more about how you can earn 20,000 bonus points worth $200 if you spend $1,000 in the first 90 days of opening your account. Score big with the US Bank Altitude Go Visa Signature Car. Visit usbank.com slash altitude go to apply and live every day your way. Limited time offer. The creditor and issue of this card is U.S. Bank National Association, pursuant to a license from Visa USA Incorporated. Some restrictions may apply. All right, let's talk about court storming in college basketball. Now, this isn't a new discussion by any means, but it's been reignited over the past few days because of an incident this past weekend between Wake Forest and Duke. Wake Forest beat Duke on their home court 82-79 to on Saturday, and thousands of fans stormed the court. Now, the problem isn't that fans stormed the court. We see this all the time in college basketball which we'll get into. The problem was that they ended up hitting Duke's seven-foot center, Kyle Filipowski, and he got hurt. He hurt his knee, and he walked off the court, and after the game, he was quoted as saying that he thought it was intentional. Now, Kyle is a huge part of Duke's team. He's their leading scorer and rebounder, and Duke is projected to be the number three seed in March Madness this year. Obviously, they have several games left in the regular season in the ACC tournament, and missing him for an extended period of time could be detrimental to their team's success. So it's unfortunate that something happened after the game. Now, a lot of people are analyzing the footage from the top down or side angles or slow-mo and talking about how they think Kyle pushed someone first or tripped someone. But that doesn't really matter to me. I take a little bit of that out of context here because when you think about it, the players are emotional at that point in time, right? They just lost a big game. Fans are running onto the court, thousands of them. You look up and there's people running directly at you. Most of you, including myself, would stick your hands up. So I'm not going to go and say that he pushed players. But in the video, you can directly see him get pushed in the back by a fan. Now, that's off limits. I think everyone, including Wake Forest fans, would say that shouldn't be allowed. And if someone does that, they should be punished. 
But I've also seen a lot of media members talk about court storming over the last few days. And it feels like everyone's taking a position on this. And this is one of the things that I hate about sports media is that you have to pick a side because ultimately there's nuance to this situation. And it's usually the answer is usually somewhere in between. And I'll give you a couple examples. I saw Jay Billis on TV saying that if they wanted to get rid of this, they could just let everyone storm the court and then put every single person in handcuffs and you wouldn't see anyone storm the court again. I don't agree with that. I think court storming is fundamentally one of the best parts of college basketball. It makes it different than professional basketball because fans have passion. They want to support their school and it's a camaraderie thing, right? You're supporting your school, you're supporting the players and you're supporting something bigger than yourself, which we don't really have in the professional leagues until you get to the finals or something like that. The second suggestion I saw was from the athletic director at the University of Alabama. And he said that if you wanted to do away with this, you should just make that team forfeit the game. And then we wouldn't have it again. The schools would get in line and they wouldn't allow this. Again, I don't agree with that. I think court storming should be allowed. But I do think that we can make a few changes to make this a little bit better for the players that are on the court itself. Number one, the NCAA failed here. Just like everything else, the NCAA left it up to the schools and the conferences to be able to do these reprimands by themselves. And what we've seen is that other conferences outside of the ACC have put rules in place to financially penalize teams that let fans storm the court. The SEC, for example, has a fining system in place where if you storm the court, your school is going to be fined $100,000 for the first instance. If you do it again, you're going to be fined $250,000. If you do it a third time and every time after that, you're going to be fined $500,000. Now, part of the problem may be that the ACC doesn't have this system in place. I've seen many people talking about that over the last few days. But I also don't really think it matters because we still see this in the SEC all the time, not only with basketball, but with football as well. Instead, I think we can change a couple of things. Number one, I think we can reduce the number of times that people are storming the court. ESPN did this study uh, over the last few days where they looked at all the college basketball games over the last few years. And what they found was really interesting. ESPN found that on average, this college basketball season, they say that three court stormings have happened every single week. Now, I don't know about you guys, but court storming used to be reserved for beating a top five team or a rival or winning a big game. It didn't happen every single week and multiple times a week. So it's become much more common over the last few years, which I don't necessarily think is a good thing. It should be reserved for those special moments because we don't want it to lose its luster either. Number two, I think the schools could hire a little bit more security. I saw Colin Coward talking about this, and he said that they should double their security from 15 to 30 security guards for each team. And I agree with him. He was getting a little bit of grief online, but I agree with him because I don't expect those security guards to stop kids from storming the court. Again, these security guards in most instances are making like 10 to $15 an hour, and they're the guys wearing yellow coats. They're not going to stop, nor should they be asked to stop all of the people from doing that. But they can be used to protect players like Kyle Filipowski leaving the court. I think that's an important thing. And then number three, if you think about the clock, one of the things that was uh, most unfortunate about this situation with Wake Forest and Duke was that if you look at the clock, when the clock hit zero, the fans are already on the court. They were on the court with time still left on the clock because the ball was in play and the game was essentially over. Now, it may have been 0.1 seconds or 0.2 seconds, but they were on the court before the game ended. So I think what these schools should do, one of the best suggestions that I've seen over the last few days, is implement a shot clock. Just put 10 seconds up on the clock and let the players get off the court for those 10 seconds and then have everyone storm the court and celebrate with the team and the fans. I think that's a fine solution. And I think it will solve most of the problems, probably 95% of the problems that we've seen in college basketball over the last few years. But the most important thing here are the players. Let's be honest. People come to the games to see the players. You have to protect them. The players can't go out on the court thinking that they're going to get hurt at the end of a game because some drunk fan or some rowdy fan decides to push them when they're happy that their team won. You can't have it, and it's something that needs to improve. I think the NCAA should have stepped up sooner than they have in the past on other issues. You can't just leave everything to the individual conferences because what we've seen is that the conferences don't normally take this as seriously. I mean, the ACC doesn't even have a policy in place. They're not finding schools. They're not reprimanding them in any capacity 
for what happened on Saturday night. Again, Kyle Filipowski and the Duke team is not completely innocent here. But at the end of the day, a fan pushed a player. You can't allow that. And there needs to be better policies in place to make sure that it doesn't happen again in the future. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. You've probably noticed over the last few years that many more of your family and friends are starting to take therapy more seriously. And it's not just you. I've personally noticed this across my family and friends too. And I think the major reason for this is that they've now noticed that therapy isn't just for those who have experienced major trauma. Therapy is proven to help with other things like communication skills, improving mood, increasing self-awareness, and making your relationships stronger. So if you're thinking about starting therapy today, there's no better place than BetterHelp. BetterHelp is entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. All you do is you go on their website, you fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. They've helped out millions of people with therapy help, and they have 35,000 licensed therapists ready to help you. So visit betterhelp.com slash pomp to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash pomp. All right, let's talk about Anthony Kim returning to professional golf. Now, for those of you that don't know Anthony Kim, he is one of the most interesting personalities in golf history. I mean, this guy came out of the gates hot in 2006 after turning pro. He was being compared to Tiger Woods in his prime. He notched four top tens on the PGA Tour his rookie season, and he even finished tied for 20th at his first major, the U.S. Open, that same year. But then he went through a number of different injuries. He injured his hand and then his Achilles, and he ended up retiring from professional golf in 2012. And the reason why you haven't heard about Anthony Kim since, despite him getting healthy, is because he's been collecting insurance checks. So when he retired from professional golf, he had an insurance policy in place that guaranteed him over $10 million in payments if he never played professional golf again. So given that the PGA Tour wasn't going to match that $10 million for him to come back to the tour and let him compete against other guys, there was no reason for him to play professional golf again. $10 million versus slugging it on tour every week, trying to compete with other players to hopefully make $10 million, that's sort of a no-brainer. But the financials in professional golf have changed over the last number of years, as I'm sure you guys know with the introduction of Live Golf. So Live Golf has said, we're going to pay your insurance policy, $10 million for a one-year contract for you to come play for us. He'll be making his debut this weekend in Saudi Arabia. He's an individual, so he's not going to be on team. He's going to be competing as a wild card. And any sponsorship money or any uh, prize money that he makes on tour this year, he'll be able to keep. So theoretically, he could make more money playing for Live Golf than he does sitting at home. The interesting part about this, though, is like, does Anthony Kim really move the needle for live golf? I don't think so. Maybe in week one, maybe in week two. But unless he's really good and he starts winning tournaments again, which is unlikely given his last 10 starts on the PGA Tour, miscut, 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 DQ, tie for 42, miscut, withdraw, 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 and then he didn't play for 12 years. So it's highly unlikely that he's going to be winning tournaments against competitors like a Brooks Kepka, a Dustin Johnson, uh, a Bryson, you know, John Rahm, guys like that that live golf has today. It's highly unlikely, and the idea is probably that the viewership interest is going to decline over the first couple of weeks. But the more interesting part about this to me is the divide between the two professional golf organizations that we've seen over the last few years. Now, it's no surprise that Live Golf has stolen a ton of guys, and they've invested billions of dollars into the sport so far with virtually no financial return. But the PGA Tour came out last year, and they said, we're going to do a deal with these guys because it's not good for fans, and we want to bring professional golf together, and they have billions of dollars that they're going to invest in the sport. Why not invest it with us? 
The only problem with that is I don't think the PJ Tour was all that serious when it announced that deal. What I really think they did was they bought themselves time. And if you really think about Live Golf, they certainly added a couple of players over the summer with John Rahm and other guys like that. But they've slowed down a little bit over the last few months. And I think that was directly correlated to the agreement with PJ Tour. But instead of finalizing that agreement, that, that declaration date came and went with the PJ Tour to figure out a deal with Live Golf. They've been saying that they're still negotiating, but nothing has been finalized. And instead, the PJ Tour really struck back. And not many people have been saying that it's an actual punch that they landed, but I think it was. And the deal that they did was a $3 billion investment from Strategic Sports Group. And you guys haven't heard about Strategic Sports Group because it's a new organization that raised money specifically to invest in the PJ Tour. It's made of, of owners of Fenway Sports Group and a bunch of other sports teams across the United States, the most powerful people in sports that you can imagine. And what they're doing is they're investing $3 billion in a new enterprise that's for profit with the PJ Tour that's valued at $12 billion. Now, that $3 billion is going to be cut into two parts. Number one, some of that money is going to be used to fully fund prize money for the next several years on the PGA Tour. So the players don't have to worry about if sponsors drop out because Live becomes more successful or anything else like that. They're going to get paid millions of dollars for competing in these events. But number two, the top players in the world are going to be earning hundreds of millions of dollars in equity in the new enterprise. They said they're going to be committing $1.5 billion in total equity, and $700 million of that is going to go to the top 36 players in the world. We're talking about guys that really move the needle. Roy McIlroy, Scotty Sheffer, Justin Thomas, guys like that, that you want to watch when they play in a tournament. So the interesting part about this is to me that it actually creates a mechanism where the two tours could actually come back together, maybe not even with Live Golf, right? And this sounds a little bit silly to say because of the money that Live Golf is throwing at some of these guys. But the biggest problem with guys coming back from Live Golf to the PGA Tour has been that there needs to be a punishment for them going to take the money and returning with no consequences. Some of the biggest names in the sport have spoken up about this and said that it wouldn't be fair for them to return without taking a penalty. And I think this equity component really solves that. Not only does it solve future players from leaving because the money is going to be tied up investing over a number of years and there's going to be no secondary market should they want to cash out on their shares. So it keeps them here for the foreseeable future. But also... If a live golf player gets tired and wants to compete in majors again or just wants to join his buddies again, now he can come back without penalty because he's not going to get equity in the new tour. So some people will say this isn't fair. Certainly outside the top 50 on the PGA Tour will say it's not fair. But the needle movers will be okay with this because they'll have tens of millions of dollars, if not hundreds of millions of dollars in potential earnings tied up on the tour. And they'll want their product to be more powerful and more profitable than ever before. And with guys like John Rahm or Bryson or Phil Mickelson want to go join that tour again, they should be allowed to do it because it's going to make their property more valuable into the future. And the older guys and the more powerful guys on the tour are going to be okay with it because of that. Now, I'm not saying that's going to happen, but I haven't heard anyone discuss this component. And I think this is a really valuable component of this deal, because if you think about it from an equity perspective, tying the major guys to the tour going forward and reducing the ability for Live Golf to come in with a big bag of money and take them away is first and foremost the most important thing and something Jay Monahan should have done from day one. But secondly, and the second most important thing here, is the ability to get some of the other guys back on tour and remake the world's most powerful golfing organization. Now, that's not to say that Live Golf or the PGA Tour won through one of these agreements, but most people have been trying to figure out a way to get the world's best golfers on one singular tour again. And I think this agreement through the PGA Tour with Strategic Sports Group tells me that a deal with Live Golf is not closed. In fact, they just landed at a punch, and they're trying to get some of these golfers back and make sure that no other golfers leave. These investors that they have through Strategic Sports Group do not like to lose, and they know the professional golf landscape better than anyone else. They know how to monetize media rights. They know how to grow sponsorship revenue, and they know how to attract other revenue streams like sports betting. This is going to be a bigger conversation into the future. Anthony Kim, for instance, doesn't move the needle for live golf. It's an interesting little nugget in the storyline of professional sports, but at the end of the day, this argument between Live Golf and the PJ Tour is nowhere close to being finished. Professional golf is getting bigger, 
especially at the amateur level and certainly at the professional level. This is something that's going to continue to come up over the next few years, and I will make sure to keep you guys updated as it does. That's it for today, though, everyone. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. If you did, please do me a favor and leave me a five-star review wherever you listen to your podcast. Otherwise, I hope everyone has a great day, and we'll talk later this week.